This episode of the Ed Surge Podcast is brought to you by the Elementary Education Program at Emporia State University. The Online Masters in Elementary Education Program at Emporia State is designed for career changers interested in becoming elementary teachers. Learn more at emporia.edu slash teachers dash college. That's emporia.edu slash teachers hyphen college. Diversity is a slippery concept. It can be used as part of powerful discourse about access to resources and making organizations more equitable. But it can also be diluted to refer to just about any sort of difference thrown together for any sort of purpose. This ambiguity around diversity plays out at colleges. When they set goals and make claims about recruiting diverse groups of students, what exactly are they after? And who really benefits? Hello, and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where each week we look at how education is changing. I'm Rebecca Koenig, a reporter for EdSurge. This week, I spoke with Jordan Stark, a doctoral student at Princeton University who studies race, diversity, and education. His latest research looks at how colleges talk about diversity and about why they embrace it and how that language ends up affecting students. He lays out his findings in the prestigious journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in a paper he co-wrote with Stacy Sinclair and J. Nicole Shelton. Stark and his co-authors studied university websites, surveyed parents and admissions officers, and looked at student outcome data to figure out what exactly is going on with policies, practices, and communications about diversity. It turns out the Supreme Court has something to do with it, and so do the preferences and priorities of the folks these institutions were originally designed to educate, white people. What interested you in taking a closer look at the ways that colleges communicate about student diversity? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple ways to answer that question. Um, I think the, the fullest answer is, so when I was in college, I went to Davidson College. Um, and while I was there, I did a lot of sort of advocacy and fundraising work related to student access in higher education. So Davidson's actually one of the leaders in the country in terms of uh, access in higher education, making sure everybody can have an affordable college experience. Um, and so I started as a sophomore really trying to campaign to raise awareness and, and and raise funds to support that effort to make sure that everybody can come to Davidson without being encumbered in debt when they graduate. And after a couple of years of doing this and having a lot of conversations about folks and making a lot of different sorts of arguments for why we should be making that sort of commitment, um, I realized that there's a wide range of different arguments that people are using for embracing diversity or making institutions, institutions of higher education more accessible. Um, some people had a very moral commitment. Davidson itself actually has a pretty principled commitment to access, but some people have very um, you know, instrumental utilitarian sort of arguments for why we should be doing so. Um, and there was actually a period when I became disillusioned after a few years of making these sorts of arguments. Some arguments were very principled. Some arguments are very instrumental in talking about the benefit that students from different backgrounds can provide to other students. I know I came across some folks who had such a strong lens on how bringing in those other sorts of students can benefit everybody else that it almost felt like those other students 
were like exhibits in a zoo, right? The, that the institution was made for these full paid dominant group, majority group students, that everybody else was just there as part of their educational benefit. And so that sort of stuck with me, that, that notion, and um, it reminded me of some things that I had learned in freshman year in a certain class, a sociology of education class about uh, interest convergence and, and how we need to pay attention to the different arguments for inclusion and who those different arguments benefit, right? So the interest convergence hypothesis came from criti critical race theorists as early as the 70s, talking about how, you know, the appearance of progress in terms of racial equity, or, or, or in this case, with socioeconomic equity, tends to happen when the majority group also benefits, right? And we need to pay attention to how um, to how, how different dynamics of power and inequality can be reproduced even as progress is happening, right? So that's in my in my biography sort of where I started having these sorts of interests. Then after I, after college, I was also um, a teacher for a while at a, at a private school in, in Charlotte. And I, again, was privy to these sorts of conversations as I served on the admissions committee. We were making decisions about different sorts of kids and how sometimes the conversation was very much on benefiting the kid. And sometimes there were conversations that were very much about how the kid could benefit the school and other students. And I just found that very interesting. And so then when I went to graduate school, my uh, advisor was also interested in this question. And I'm like, yeah, I'm interested in this. Let's do some research. Um, and, and that was sort of the birth of, the, of this project um, four or five years ago now at this point. You've kind of expressed um, different sides of what is perhaps a spectrum here with a moral justification for valuing diversity at a college or other organization and um, a more instrumental justification for why, you know, we ought to make these places more diverse. And I'm curious to know how you define or think about, you know, a moral rationale versus a more instrumental rationale. Yeah, yeah. And these two things aren't mutually exclusive. Um, there are definitely arguments that are high in both instrumentality and morality. Um, so, you know, the general way that we are thinking about this, right, is grounded in the actual experience in the U.S. context, right? So, Moral rationales, as we term them, are based on intrinsic values or principles, right? They tend to be concerned with values or principles concerned with equity, justice, fairness. In the U.S. context, they tend to also bring up histories of inequality and disadvantage, right? So those are what we are calling moral rationales, right, that have a principled commitment. Instrumental rationales, on the other hand, are um, commitments grounded in a benefit, right? It could be a collective benefit that diversity uh, provides for either an institution or for the members in the institution. All right, so in the context of education, there are a number of instrumental arguments, uh, mostly that like exposure to diverse perspectives can increase uh, cognitive skills, can increase uh, your capacity to interact, to be successful on this global 21st century marketplace of jobs where you're going to have to interact with people from different parts of the world or from different backgrounds. So it really provides this great educational experience and a diversity of perspectives can help with all the routine objectives that a university community would want to be able to accomplish. The, the research centers um, on, you know, examining some of the consequences or the outcomes associated with these different, uh, these different justifications. And I wonder if you could give us a little summary of kind of the questions you were looking at in, in this paper um, and, you know, an overview of, of some of what you found. Yeah, of course. So this uh, research program is very, very early on. We're just getting started. And so there are a lot of there's a lot more work to, to be done to have definitive answers to your question. 
Um, so really, the work that we did started with just assessing what do people like and what do people expect about universities that have either an instrumental or a moral approach to diversity. We know in the real world that universities often have both sort of rationales, but we just separated them out in our research to try to clarify things in terms of, of those of those two discrete different types of motivational um, motivations, right? And so we know that, so we asked people about which universities do you, do you like better, instrumental or morally motivated universities. We find that uh, white Americans tend to like instrumentally motivated universities better, whereas black Americans tend to like morally motivated universities better. And in our data, we didn't have a, a ton of representation from people from other racial backgrounds, so that, that, that question hasn't been thoroughly answered. But it seems like, if I were to peek and think about what the data might be suggesting, that um, you know, Latinx Americans uh, also tend to show somewhat of an inclination for the morally motivated university. And from our data, again, this is preliminary, Asian Americans didn't show a preference for either, right? So that unique for the instrumentally motivated university was unique to white Americans upon among the participants that we had in our data, right? But your question is more about what are the consequences when an organization takes this sort of approach? And so we asked uh, uh, the people in our sample what they expected the consequences to be, right? So we asked uh, white and black participants, um, and we also asked admissions officers what they would expect to happen at universities that were instrumentally or morally motivated. And what we find is that generally people expect for white students to fare better across a host of outcomes, academic and socio-emotional outcomes at instrumentally motivated universities and for black students to have the opposite outcomes, to have better relative outcomes at morally motivated universities. Right. So that's the general finding that we have. And that's both when we have white and black participants projecting what their own or their own students outcomes would be. And when we ask admissions officers what would happen for black or white prospective students if they were to go to these sorts of universities. Right. And so there's a lot of work to uh, to be done to see if that's actually the case and how that might how those outcomes might actually uh, manifest. Uh, so what we've done initially as a first blush is just an observational study to see if there is a relationship between uh, students' outcomes at universities as a function of how much they valued, they took this instrumental or this moral approach to diversity. And what we find here, it's, it's, it's a little complicated, <laughs> so bear with me. <laughs> what we find is that there's a general negative relationship uh, for instrumental rationales and moral rationales by themselves. Okay, so what, what, but, uh, and, 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 um, graduation rates for black students and also for Latinx students. So let's just talk about instrumental rationales for right now. The more a university is instrumentally motivated, the worse the graduation rates for their black students, right? And this finding also replicated for, for, for Latinx students, right? And these are, uh, predominantly white institutions. Right. We did not include HBCUs in our data set. Okay. Right. So these are predominantly white institutions that were listed on the U.S. News and World Report list of uh, national universities. Okay. Um, and this is particularly true, this negative relationship, when a university has a low level of moral commitment to, to, to diversity. Right. Now, what is curious that we didn't expect is we also see the same relationship with moral rationales. The more, there's a, the more morally motivated a university is... This seems to be that negative relationship as well. And that's also particularly true when it has low levels of instrumentally motivated, uh, of instrumental motivations, right? So, so this does provide some evidence for us that, uh, there, that there's something going on with these rationales, right? Um, and 
There's some evidence consistent with what our participants' expectations were that these instrumental rationales accord with worse outcomes for, for Black and Latinx students, right, underrepresented racial minorities in the context of education. And also, I should mention, white students' graduation rates are unrelated to these rationales at all, right? So it's a particular effect for underrepresented racial minorities, and that's the same thing for Asian students. It's not related to the graduation rates, right? So it's a particular relationship for, um, for underrepresented racial minorities, uh, and it seems to be right now that the best thing for a university to do would be to have both <laughs> both sort of rationales, right? To embrace diversity for both reasons. Now, we have a lot, a long way to go to try to figure out exactly what is happening and what is causing these relationships, and that's what we're going to be doing in, as our next steps. So when colleges embrace diversity, who is that designed to help? We'll get to that right after the break. Do you know someone interested in becoming an elementary teacher? Emporia State University's 33-hour elementary education master's program allows individuals to do just that, regardless of their background of study. The coursework is available online, and the clinical classroom experience can be completed at a placement near you, allowing you to earn a master's degree without changing locations. In as little as two years, Emporia students will not only have a master's degree, but they'll also be eligible for an elementary education teaching license depending on their home state's requirements. Send your paras, stay-at-home parents, subs, and anyone else who might be interested to emporia.edu slash teachers college to learn more. That address once more is emporia.edu slash teachers college. Now back to the episode. At many colleges, you know, based on your personal experience, your, your other research, and then also these different rationales, who does diversity seem designed to benefit and make comfortable? Who is this um, a feature for? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I love the yes, the, the the phrase in terms of diversity, like with sort of the applied air quotes, right? Because uh, there's there's a history there about the use of the term diversity itself that other scholars have given some very thoughtful attention to. Because um, you know this this discourse of diversity itself is a historical phenomenon that that needs explanation, right? Like 50 years ago, like in the 60s, the civil rights movement wasn't talking about diversity, right? We were talking about access, we were talking about justice, we were talking about equality and making uh, claims wanting affirmative action, right? But that discourse has been supplanted with the diversity discourse and there are, people have made sort of intelligent uh, arguments for how this, 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 this maneuver to shift to diversity um, serves to make dominant groups more comfortable and also to sort of distill the demands that are associated with uh, trying to have more institutional access, right? So this this idea of diversity is definitely a broader term uh, that doesn't necessarily have the specific focus and punchiness of some of these other terms that we might have, uh, might use. Um, and it definitely um, serves to make dominant group members more comfortable, right? Because it doesn't necessarily talk about things about privilege or inequality or anything like that. Uh, and, you know, that's part of our working uh, assumptions about why these instrumental rationales, when an organization takes them, but doesn't also have the moral commitment to diversity, why why, and how that institution might be operating differently uh, if it's focused for diversity in this sort of narrow sense of how it can be a benefit to other people rather than focused on justice and inequality, right? So talking about diversity... Um, I think there's an assumption that diversity is automatically meant to benefit underrepresented groups, right? Because it's saying that this institution cares about people who are not already represented, 
right? And so that's an assumption. Uh, and I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. But I think also by comparison to some of the other language that we could be using to talk about an institutional commitment to access inequality, diversity is a relatively weak term. It, it kind of brings to my mind um, some stereotypical kind of college brochures in which maybe you see um, smiling faces of students of, of all kinds of backgrounds. And it seems like such an image doesn't necessarily tell you, are all those students doing well at this place? Are they all happy to be there? Do they even like each other? Um, it's just mm-hmm. kind of an image that that explanation kind of makes me think of. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and one thing that we think is interesting, right, um, is that uh, and other researchers, as well as research coming out of our lab, has, has looked at when you have this instrumental rationale, right, it broadens the conception of how we think about diversity compared to moral rationale. So when you think about diversity in moral terms, you tend to think specifically about underrepresented racial groups. You might also think about low income people. Right. When you think about the instrumental terms, about how that you you. you then enter to a paradigm to, in which diversity is about difference, difference that's removed from inequality and disadvantage. So any sort of difference can contribute to diversity, right? If I'm from some geographic location, not many people are from, if I have you know, a different family structure, if I'm left-handed, if I have different beliefs, whatever it is, that's all a part of diversity, right? So uh, there are reasons why that's appealing, right? So if you're a dominant group member, you might feel left out when an organization makes a commitment to diversity that's grounded in racial minorities or underrepresented groups, or you might feel threatened by that, or like you might somehow be assumed to be a bad person. But if you have this broader representation of what diversity is, that's then more palatable, more attractive, and less reason to be defensive, right? So I think there's a lot going on. Uh, this 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 term diversity is very um, maneuverable. It can be it can be made to mean a lot of ways, and so uh, exactly how people interpret what that term means is. Um, affected by the type of approach, this instrumental or more approach that a university is taking. Part of part of this research is the idea that we're not just talking about statements and communication, that these um, pieces of language that universities use, you know, relate more deeply to how they operate. Is is that kind of one of the things that you're examining? It, it, you know, it's not just that the statement itself says X, Y, or Z. It's presumably affiliated with some deeper philosophy. For sure, for sure. I'm so glad you asked that question. It's not, as far as we're concerned, it's not about the statements. It's about um, institutional commitments and then the institutional actions and priorities and institutional culture that they can, then could follow from those commitments, right? Um, so these are exactly the kinds of things that we need to uh, tie down and button up with subsequent analysis, analyses to try to figure out, okay, when an organization takes an instrument or moral approach to diversity, what is different from that organization that then could lead to different outcomes for its students? Have you uh, either tested or do you have any thoughts about whether uh, students on campuses perceive whether they are at a place that has a moral commitment or a more instrumental commitment? Do you think that that is something kind of palpable or maybe just to just to researchers and experts who are looking at this? I think students feel it. Uh, I think students feel it, uh, especially if you ask them about it, right? Or if you give them this framework, then people have something to say about it, right? Uh, but I think students feel it. I think there's... Um, 
An interesting anecdote. So when we surveyed our um, admissions officers for this data, it was a really fun data collection. Uh, I know I sound like a nerd right now, like, oh, this data collection was amazing. But it was actually really fun because we crashed this college fair. Um, we went undercover. <laughs> Sorry, we're soliciting and we're not supposed to be. They didn't expressly tell us we couldn't do it. We just didn't want to get caught, so we didn't have to explain ourselves, right? But so what was really fun, we crashed this college fair. I think it was like 200-some-odd different booths that were set up. We went around asking admissions officers to complete our survey and a lot of them wanted to have conversations with us about it and what was really insightful was that a lot of our admissions officers were actually very reflective they thought that completing the survey itself was very helpful because they were like oh i actually never thought about it in these terms but now that you bring these terms to the fore i now see trends and all the like all the, the implications of how how we're doing what we're doing and how this is racialized right cuz i think what's hard you know people are talking a lot about systemic racism and issues of race now and what's challenging for everyone is to see how race is implicated in the decisions that we make when we're not thinking about it right so um usually when a lot of times when i talk about this work uh, more in depth you know, I, I, I try to bring to, to the fore how interesting it is, and not only interesting, but how it, it's almost an illustration of systemic racism that, you know, we we have these diversity rationales, these instrumental rationales that um, that are favored uniquely by white Americans, right? That they are expected to benefit white Americans over minorities. And we have some evidence that that might be the case. We still need to, to do that some more. But yet and still, they are the dominant rationale used in universities right and it's like oh what's what's up with that right this is what people are talking about when we said well we have some systemic racism we have systemic racism in our society um and so i think i'm saying all this to say i think when people are asked to think about it critically people can see the implications of oh wow yeah we are doing these in these instrumental ways and it probably has these these implications or we're doing these in the more ways and probably has these implications but until they're pressed to think about it, i don't think people very many people besides we social scientists who make a living of doing this are doing that. How do laws and court rulings shape these diversity practices at colleges? We know that affirmative action has been examined and re-examined by courts. Feelings about it among the public kind of shift and change. And do legal precedents come into play here at at all? Yes, yeah, most most definitely, certainly. <laughs> um, Ellen Berry is a scholar who's done some good work at this, specifically looking at the University of Michigan and how its its approach to diversity has changed over the decades, uh, in part in response to um, to Supreme Court rulings and litigation, and how uni- higher ed in general has responded to that. Right, so most certainly. Uh, the courts play a big role in what universities can do. Um, the 1978 uh, Baki versus University of California case is often credited as one of the first um, cases to really play a strong role in shaping the landscape here. Like in that case, um, the University of California, I believe, presented six arguments in defense of race conscious admissions policies. Uh, at that time, five of them were based on things that you could categorized as a, a moral rationale or based on justice. And one of them was instrumental. And there was an opinion written by uh, Justice Powell that dismissed all five of the moral arguments and only preserved this instrumental rationale that diversity provides uh, 
a learning benefit that's a legitimate in the legitimate interest of universities to pursue right and from that de- decision on universities have clearly responded to make sure that they are on a solid legal footing in terms of how they talk about diversity and their institutional commitment to diversity right and so there have been people who have written you know about we have these major gains in the civil rights movement in terms of gaining access and support for affirmative action policies that from the executive office and and, and, and how the Supreme Court is ruling on, on certain rulings. And then subsequent to that, there's a conservative backlash, right, in which the Supreme Court, the members change, uh, the executive office and various political actors um, and conservative strategists are are moving to repeal many of the gains and footings that were made from the civil rights movement such that this instrumental argument is really the the most solid foundation that that universities have to to express their commitment to diversity um, and so then you know we we see that and is and some folks have mapped how that has um shaped how universities make their commitments and then those commitments then of course uh change how they they manage manage diversity so to speak does it follow from that that there could be universities that have a moral commitment but are couching it in this instrumental language in order not to, you know, attract unwanted legal attention? Or is that not necessarily the hypothesis or the results that you all have, have found? I think that's totally possible. So our like that's in our analyses, our primary uh, way of seeing what universities were up to was by coding their websites, right? But that's part of why it was so important for us to go talk to admissions officers and to get their sense of what the lay of the land was to make sure we weren't just getting, okay, we're going to say this very tightly manicured thing just to comply with legal norms on our website, but we're really doing something else in our office. So that's why we wanted to get on the ground to talk to people who are actually on site to get a sense of what the norms are. Um, but and the stories that were being told from the the website data and the, the admissions officer data were really consistent with one another. To to get back a little bit to, you know, who these messages appeal to and who might benefit from them, um, you found that admissions officers and black caregivers expected uh, that Black students would be happier and healthier at morally motivated universities. And that, those are, I feel like, pretty evocative terms. Happiness and health, um, you know, seem to come into play here. And I wonder what this means for, um, you know, whether Black students or students of other under represented racial groups are really well served at attending these places um, or not? Yeah, these are the questions. These are the questions we're asking ourselves, right? Um, and it's, it's, it's hard to know, right? So what is the basis of people making that projection that Black students would be happier and healthier at those universities? It's something that we really need to unpack. It might be as simple as when people make a moral commitment, it's as opposed to an instrumental commitment, it seems to be a stronger commitment. It it seen it is seen to be a stronger commitment. Could it might be just as simple as uh people think that organizations that make those commitments are more invested in making uh sure that underrepresented students are taken care of, are happy and healthy on their campuses, right? Uh but we really need to uh investigate what that actually looks like on the ground. Um because it's hard 
it, it's really hard to say. And there's a lot of nuance that, that could potentially happen once you get on campus in terms of what kind of university is saying who, like, it's, it's saying what. Um, any, are, is there any other research you're working on at the moment? I'm, I'm sure there is other research you're working on at the moment. Anything, anything else to look forward to? Yeah, yeah. So um, my dissertation work is following up on this. Um, and so I guess I'll just leave these as uh, as sort of research teases for anybody who would be just teased by future research. Um, so one way we're following up on this work is looking at how instrumental and moral rationales um, differently compel teachers to use um, racially equitable pedagogies, right? Um, culturally responsive teaching in the classroom. Um, and we are also looking at the extent to which these rationales uh, definitely relate to how people tolerate pain that's inflicted on racial minorities in social interactions, right? So, you know, when you instrumentalize somebody, there's a risk for objectification, right? Uh, and so when you objectify somebody, uh, you tend to be more tolerant of pain that's being inflicted upon them, especially when it serves those instrumental goals. So we are, we are exploring that as well. Um, so these are to be, uh, to, <laughs> these to are be the, continued. The movie trailers for yeah, coming attractions. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Got it. Well, thank you so much. It was great to speak with you. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been the EdSearch Podcast. Each week, we bring you stories like this one. If you like the show, please share it on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll subscribe to the EdSearch Podcast so you don't miss future episodes. For more coverage of how education is changing, sign up for EdSurge newsletters or check out our website, edsurge.com. There's even a newsletter for this podcast. Just go to the EdSurge homepage and click on newsletters at the top right to sign up. This episode was written by me, Rebecca Koenig, and you can find me on Twitter at Becky underscore Koenig. Editing this episode was by Jeff Young, and music was by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.